This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Today is Thursday, April 23rd. I am John Dunn. Thank you for listening to the Best Friends Podcast. These are very strange times indeed. Hosting a podcast during a global pandemic wasn't something I saw in my future, but here we are. And I am truly enjoying it, and of course, I hope you like the podcast. Just the mere fact that you have chosen to subscribe and listen to this episode means the world to us. And we always want to make sure you're getting the value out of it. You're taking the time to listen, so let's make sure you get something from it. Send us an email, podcast at bestfriends.org. What are you concerned about? Is it the economy? Maybe it's the question of essential services, how to keep your staff, volunteers safe, whatever it is. Email podcast at bestfriends.org. If this time has you feeling down, maybe a little blue, maybe your team's morale isn't where it needs to be, we're happy to be able to bring you an idea of how to fix it. My name is Michelle Whaley. I'm director of Pitt County Animal Services. We're located in Greenville, North Carolina. This July will make my 19th year in this role. And we're kind of, you know, getting a little stir crazy and miss, I guess, as weird as it sounds, having a packed shelter, especially this time of year to take care of. The second week, especially near the end of it, you know, people not only had the stress at work, but, you know, they're concerned about their loved ones, their family, their friends, you know, trying to stay safe at work and protect those that they love and their animals. And I could just start seeing the strain. Take it back now, y'all. One hop this time. I made everybody go out in the parking lot where we could social distance, and we did the cha-cha slide. Slide to the left, slide to the right. And we're not known for our dancing, but just to get everybody into some fresh air, to do something totally ridiculous and silly. Tuesday morning, PCA dance party. I would let a staff member choose the song of the day. Polka! Dance around, freestyle! You know, a couple of officers that thought they were going to slide out and want to go to their trucks to get out of it. Nope, this is team participation. No one's getting out of it. Social distancing, of course. Wow, y'all are good on this. It just kind of started off the day in a lighter, positive mood um, and just let off some steam. I don't know. I'm just trying to look up how to do it. Uh, uh, shoulder, shoulder. You know, not that the issues aren't serious and it doesn't. It didn't take the concerns away that people had, but then, you know, it's funny because then different staff members were really getting into it. And we were talking today, you know, we need to start incorporating props and, and it's just fun that, you know, at first it was kind of dragging them along. uh, And now it's kind of become a team effort that I think we actually look forward to. If we had to make a living on our dancing skills, I think we'd all be in trouble. You know, YMCA, I'm the director and I'm the one doing the backwards C. So, you know, what can I say? I'm kind of forceful and bossy, so I didn't really make it an option. I was like, everybody's going to go outside. I mean, of course, when you start it, I can't really make them dance. Robot! You can't be scared and you can't let fear hold you back. And sometimes you just have to think outside the box and try it. And if it truly doesn't work, it doesn't work. But if you don't try it, then you never know. I'm just DJing. I can't do that. 
but I'll probably never forget that shelter tenant who's kind of reserved and kind of shy, you know, tell me, I hate to admit it, but I, I had fun and it makes me feel better. It has been a nice way to get all staff, regardless of their role, together. You know, it's something I would want to continue at least once a week. Uh, I would just say try it. I'm out of here, y'all. Peace. If you'd like to see the Pitt County Dance Crew in action for yourself, go to our website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. We've put up a video, bestfriends.org slash podcast. This week is National Volunteer Week. Volunteers make our world go round. Show me an organization doing great things, and without question, there is a group of dedicated volunteers, each giving their heart and soul to save them all. This story is about one of those people. For three years now, Rachel Lawbaugh has been a volunteer with Animal Care and Control Team of Philadelphia, or as it's better known, ACT Philly. I started as a dog walking volunteer at ACT and um, quickly grew interested in doing doggy playgroups at the animal shelter to provide canine enrichment. Today, she's one of the lead playgroup facilitators. I would spend probably about a total of 16 hours volunteering at ACT each week. And then COVID-19. The pandemic prevented Rachel from putting in those 16 hours running playgroups, but that didn't mean she was going to stop using her time to help the animals of Philadelphia. She realized one thing she could do from her home was fundraise. Barks in Baltimore, Maryland, and uh, the Wisconsin Humane Society had hosted these online Facebook fundraisers known as a bad pet portrait fundraiser. Folks would post pictures of their personal pets and friends' pets, and they would donate $20 on the Facebook donate button to Act Philly, and then they would in turn get a picture of their pet. With the support of Act Philly's development team, she reached out to the Wisconsin Humane Society. They happily gave her the blueprints from their event and some tips based on what they learned from putting it on. We got to work. We made the post live on a Wednesday and we had the intention of raising $12,000. Now remember, this is framed up as a bad pet portrait deal, right? Shelters aren't generally full of staff who dabble in professional pet portraits on the side. No guarantee that it would be of high quality at, by any means. And uh, we are very lucky. We have a lot of really, really talented artists at Act Philly, both staff and volunteers. And whether the result was fine art or not, the goal was to raise money in a fun way. We had over 100 artists donate their time to do this for free, completing over 800 portraits. We ended up raising $16,000. So mission accomplished. Now, one thing we can always do better is engage our volunteers. As you heard Rachel say, she puts in 16 hours a week. It doesn't feel that much in the, the moment. So what do you need to do to create your own Rachel? By that, I mean, how do you take someone with the passion she has and over time deepen the relationship to a point where 16 hours a week is no big deal? When I started, I felt very heard as a volunteer. That's one thing that was special to me. Now, from there on her own, Rachel says she identified some individual volunteers and staff members who had been around a while. She gravitated toward them and learned from them. The things that keep me coming back, of course, the animals, which is always a passion that I'm going to have, but the camaraderie that I was able to build with those staff members and those volunteers at ACT Philly was truly priceless. To be able to spend time with folks that are just as passionate about animals as you are. And we can never, ever forget the basics. Being greeted with a smile and being thanked and 
being asked to, you know, work on something or, or help someone with something and being able to feel appreciated in that way is very unique where at my day job, I don't necessarily get thanked as often. So take the time to nurture your volunteers, invest in them, listen to them, help them grow along with you. You might just find yourself with a Rachel, someone who can pivot to being a valuable member of your development team, but is still committed to those 16 hours a week. I am so ready. I miss the dogs so much. It's, it's been very hard to not be there at the shelter. And last, but certainly not least today, a short chat about volunteers with Gina Nepp. For a little over eight years, Gina managed the Front Street Animal Shelter, the open admission municipal shelter in Sacramento, California. A few months ago, she became the National Shelter Engagement Director for the Michelson Found Animals Foundation. Gina is so great and so knowledgeable about basically everything. It will not be the last time you hear her on this podcast, but I was excited to be able to chat with her this week about volunteers. All right, Gina, volunteers, the lifeblood, the unsung heroes, priceless, the heart of what we do. Uh, obviously, these are all true statements, but you know, I think uh, they're almost just sort of platitudes at this point. But you know, for you, what are volunteers to you? What comes to mind? When I think about volunteers just in general, one word that comes to mind for me that I would emphasize to this industry, and that's trust trusting people who are often far more educated, far smarter, and far more creative, at least I know, than I am. And um, yeah, that would be my number one piece of advice. We're almost afraid to let real smart people help us do our jobs. And I, I just don't understand that. Um, when I was at Front Street, our volunteer program grew exponentially while I was there from like, I don't know, giving us 400 hours a month to 6,000 hours a month. Um, the value of volunteers at Front Street was like $2.4 million in 2019. That's a lot of hours. It's a lot of hours. Um, you know, we think about, well, what, especially now, because things are so strange, what could we be doing to make volunteers feel relevant? Because a lot of agencies have unfortunately had to shut their doors and not allow volunteers in. Um, what better time than now to, for that director? Seriously to pick their you know, top 20 volunteers that give the most, whether it's hours monetarily or whatever they do, and actually call them and say, how are you? What, you know, is there anything you need? You know, I miss you. That personal touch, um, I think, especially now in this day and age, is uh, far more meaningful. Be careful when you say touch, <laughs> because we can't do that anymore, can <laughs> yeah, we? Yeah, we can give them a virtual touch. And I think people need that. Um, I, I think volunteers after, you know, this whole COVID thing turns into whatever it turns into, the diehards will come back. But I think we, we stand the chance of losing some just because we didn't keep them informed. You know, are, are, you know are, are we reaching out? Are we offering some kind of communication to them, whether it's Zoom meetings or virtual happy hours for the sake of seeing each other's faces while we can't be physically together? I think those are really poignant and, and maybe lessons that we'll learn after this is over. You know, you don't have to have a gala um, to make people feel important. And, and maybe I think this will help us rejigger our approach. Uh, it'll certainly be a lot less expensive, right? And if I were a volunteer and the director of the organization called me at home to see how I was doing, that would have meaning for me, um, more, much more so than a button I'm gonna put on my you know, hat or my shirt or whatever. Now you mentioned appreciation of volunteers. Uh, you know, a direct call 
beating out, awarding somebody a pin. I don't want to criticize and everybody has different motivations, but speaking from experience as a volunteer, I feel like all too often, the thing we get as a thank you is the pizza party one time a year. And it's the moment to say thanks. And I've just never felt like, you know, it's just not enough to show the appreciation for, for so many hours of work. So to that end, why isn't Zoom not just a virtual pizza party, but I have to buy my own food. Well, but because it's different, because it's different, because it's fun, because you actually have FaceTime with someone. When you have an event and there's all these people swirling about, you don't really get to talk to the key players. And so on a Zoom, you have their undivided attention. And what better opportunity to explain what we're doing, what our plan is, how they can help us now and in the future, I mean, the more information that we give to our volunteers, the better. I mean, if we try to hide the reality of our industry and the possible changes that are coming, I mean, we all know sheltering is never going to be the same again. And if there's one good thing about this pandemic, it's that. Uh, We learned a lot from this. And there's going to be volunteers that feel very insecure about those changes or disagree. I mean, God forbid, I mean, a lot of them, they caught their hair on fire when we stopped spaying and neutering right? Because all the, you know, everybody was going to have babies during this uh, event. But I think keeping the communication loop open with face-to-face, even if it is technology face-to-face is super, super important. And if you're not doing that, you're missing. I mean, you want to keep them with you. You want to keep them close so that when, when it's appropriate and it's possible, they can come back and continue the good work that they do. We talked before this, and I said I didn't want it to be entirely volunteers in the time of COVID. But, you know, we have to face the fact that we have these big problems heading our way, rolling our way, and volunteers more than ever will be needed. It's just the way it is. So is there something we can be doing now to create plans, like whatever, you know, prep, so that we're ready to react as we go. One of the big things that comes to mind for me right now is the phenomenal response that Americans, you know, when they stepped up to the plate to foster, right? And I know of several shelters that have hundreds of people on a waiting list that want to foster and we don't have anything to give them, right? Our shelters are virtually empty. That's not going to last forever. We have to be engaging with that group right now. We call them fosters, but essentially they're volunteers, aren't they? So can we can we give them all online training? Can we at least stay in touch with them and let them know what's happening, what the future looks like? We have to have constant conversations with these people. The medium doesn't matter or they will lose interest in what we're doing. And if we do want to keep our shelters at 50% capacity, those are the people that we really need to be engaging, in my opinion. Yeah, I want to go back to the, the thing that you said at the beginning, which is the trust uh, and allowing uh, a volunteer to take on tasks that may even feel uncomfortable to let somebody who isn't paid or isn't you uh, take on. Do you have any examples maybe of the things in your career, maybe something at Front Street where uh, there may have been hesitance to do it, but you let a volunteer loose and man, you know, the payoff was so big? For sure. I mean, no one has enough staff ever. And at Front Street, we did require behavior evaluations. That's just something that you know was part of our repertoire, especially for big dogs. And we just didn't have enough trained animal care technicians to stay on top of BEs. Um, and so I invited a handful of volunteers that expressed interest to go through, and we paid for it to go through. We use Kelly Bolin, just but you can use you know whatever you use, and we put them through the training, and they went to school for days. 
And they became the lead BEs for our organization for nearly two years. And the lady that was in charge of that team, um, she ran a $5 million business. She had retired, but she was super smart, tons smarter than I am. She has, she was the best data monkey. I mean, she was crazy. Every single BE, there was data, there was tracking on outcomes, there was percentages and there were charts and they took it very seriously and they did a beautiful job. And in the beginning, there was a lot of, oh my God, they can't possibly do it, you know, average people. But we're expecting average people to adopt our pets. So in my opinion, who better, right? And so that was just one example of really stepping out on the edge and saying, yeah, they, they can do that. Kind of comically, there was so much hesitancy in the beginning. And then about two years later, the lady that really was the driver behind that project uh, moved to another state. And the response from staff was like, oh my God, well, what are we going to do, right? So it's a complete flip from day one, you know, to what it ended up being. You know, another example is um, staff wanted to, some staff wanted to treat ringworm. Uh, most staff did not. And we just didn't have the capacity to do that. We did have a veterinarian that was really interested. And finally, I just said, you guys want to have a ringworm town? Fine. Find the volunteers to manage the program seven days a week because I can't spare another staff person to do that. And that was the birth of Ringworm Town. One day I'm walking through the kennels and the ringworm room is empty. I'm like, oh, yay, they all graduated. That's great. And two days later, I walk by and there's like nine ringworm cats in there. Like, where do they come from? Staff was stealing or borrowing ringworm cats from the county shelter in exchange for barn cats. And I think we got the short end of the stick. But I, but it, again, it's an example of trusting regular people to implement a program that was hugely successful. And then everybody acts like they own it, right? It was their idea. You know, I just feel like, Gina, the, most of the people, hopefully, that listen to this are, I mean, you know, they're Best Friends Network partners. They're, you know, municipal shelters, organizations that I think are, by and large, doing most of the right things, right? So uh, the more general we make this about volunteer volunteers and volunteer management, I think the most of them are going to be like, I know all this. Well, they, everybody says, I know that and we're already doing it. But if you sit down and really self-reflect, we're not really doing all of those things. You know, I, I will say that when I got to Front Street, I decided that volunteers could do everything that we do except euthanize and operate unless they were a licensed DVM in, in the state of California, um, everything. And there isn't any reason that they couldn't. And there was pushback, but guess what? When the volunteers don't show up with the regularity that we're accustomed, staff are saying, where are the volunteers? We need them here today. And translating that to the volunteer that they are that needed, they are that integral and that important is key to a successful volunteer program, period. You know, if you give me an agency in this country that doesn't have a vibrant, volunteer program, it's, I hate to say this, it's their fault. It's the organization's fault. Nobody else's because people are great. People are good. They want to help you, but you have to let them help you. And I feel like I'm preaching because I am sorry. Um, but it just infuriates me when I see organizations say, well, we can't get volunteers. This is a very highly populated country. There's plenty of people there. There just are. And uh, now more than ever, we need to do some soul searching on what we're allowing people to do and how we treat them when they're, do they're doing it. I'd like to thank my producers, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, and Mark Peralta. The website, alwaysbestfriends.org slash podcast. Please take care of yourselves and each other and be safe. 
I'm John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.